You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Our scripture reading today will be from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's the reading of God's word. All God's people said, Amen. Hello, Mosaic family, and welcome today. Thank you so much for, for joining us online. If you're new today, uh, my name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor here, and of course, uh, this is our first time doing this exclusively online, and so we're going to be making some adjustments and improvements as we go each week, so stay tuned, and you'll see what those are. And second, of course, uh, if you heard the, the mayor of Austin's pronouncement last night, his announcement that uh, gatherings of 250-plus are going to be banned until at least May 1st, that obviously calls in a question some of our scheduling in terms of Easter and Good Friday and all that, but uh, we'll be communicating all that to you and figuring it out as we go, as are you as well. So uh, again, we, uh, you should know if you're new, we've been moving through the Gospel of Mark and we've been dividing it up into a kind of trilogy as we've been going. But today, in light of current events, we are moving forward into our final section just a week early. So far, we've seen that Jesus has been the man who acts. We've seen him as the God who heals. And today we move into the final section that take us all the way to Easter. Today, we begin to see Jesus in a new light. We've heard Jesus uh, announced in in chapter one. We've heard him call the disciples. We watched him heal. But today, we see a shocking twist in in Mark's account. It's a twist Jesus talked about. It's a twist Jesus predicted. He, He announced it over and over again. But no one believed it could happen right up until the moment it did. Today, we begin to see Jesus suffer. And of course, what that shows us right away is two things. One is a, is a challenge. The other is a comfort. First, the challenge is that it means that if Jesus suffers, it just mean, might mean that we suffer as well. But second, and this is what we'll be looking at today in depth, it shows us that in a world full of pain and darkness, it shows us a God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who has come, who enters into that darkness, who enters into that pain, and who overcomes all of it. 
So how can we do the same? How can we face a world of darkness and overcome whatever it is we might be facing today? Well, we can do that by seeing the victory of Jesus' response to darkness, by seeing Second Peter's failure uh, in his response. And third, we're going to look at how we can find out how we can get the power of Jesus' response in our lives. Or to put it another way, today we're going to be looking at, number one, a song, number two, a sword, and finally, a naked man. Now, don't get nervous. It's just only exclusively in the text, thankfully. But uh, the song is going to show us the victory of Jesus' response to darkness. The sword is going to show us the failure of Peter's response. And the naked man, at the end of all things, will show us how to get the power of Jesus' response in our lives. So let's go, number one, and take a look at the song here. Here's our question. How does Jesus, the Son of God, how does he begin to respond to darkness? Well, here in Mark 14, as Jesus is leaving what's known as the Last Supper, as he's, as he's leaving this last meal he's had with his friends, he gets up and he goes to the garden to pray. And here he knows his time has come. He knows he's about to be uh, arrested. He knows he's about to be tortured. He knows he's about to be killed. He's regularly, consistently predicted this. And so uh, as he gets up here, as he gets up to go out and to face an unknown future full of pain and darkness, do you know what Jesus, Son of God, does first? Oh, Jesus begins to sing. Look at this. Uh, it, says, it says, when they had sung a hymn, then they went to the Mount of Olives. How stunning is this? I mean, how beautiful is this? As Jesus stares into the darkness, he begins to sing into it first. As the Son of God stares into this vast, uh, almost bottomless abyss of evil he's about to take into his own soul and his own self, he sings into the darkness first. And of course, at first, you know, you're thinking about this, this seems kind of pointless. This almost seems like dropping a single penny into a bottomless well, almost like the sound, the echo of it won't make any difference, like it's too small of a sound to fill up the space. So, so if it's only a song, if it's only a small thing, then what's Jesus doing here? Well, by singing, he's showing us the kind of victory his kingdom is ultimately all about. What do I mean? Think about it. In the 19th century, at the height of slavery in the United States, when white leaders in that day forbid black leaders to preach, it was illegal to do that, the slaves of that day turned their suffering into another kind of spiritual practice. Many of them couldn't meet, they couldn't gather, and so they turned their suffering into singing and developed what we now call Negro spirituals. Well, why, why was this such a big deal? What's, what's so special about singing that's aimed at darkness? Well, Frederick Douglass said this about those spirituals. He said this quote, I love this, every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God, look at this word, for deliverance from change. Now, of course, some have critiqued these songs over the years as having no effect, as being relatively meaningless, only inspiring passivity in the singers. But someone named Dr. Luke Powery, he's a black professor of preaching at Princeton. A lot of P's there, yeah. But in reflecting on Douglas's words, he sums it up like this, quote, Claims of docility miss the explicit, look at this word, resistance to slavery. 
I love that. What's he saying? He's singing that singing is resistance. Worshiping is a kind of, of warfare. It's a kind of fighting. Singing brings a kind of counterintuitive strength. Let me tell you, whenever we sing in whatever darkness we're facing, our tone, like Frederick Douglass said, our tone is a testimony. Our song is a resistance against evil. And this has been true of Christ's followers throughout the ages. The, the early Christian martyrs, they sang. On their way to funeral pyres, the the Protestant reformers sang in their darkness. Martin Luther, in his day, sang. He wrote these words and sung them into his darkness. Many of you know them. He sang this. He said, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. I love that. Listen, don't tell me, don't tell me you and I can't sing into our darkness today. Don't, don't, don't tell me our tone can't be a testimony about whatever future is, is facing us. When we sing today, when we sing tomorrow, when we sing next week, when we gather again online, and especially when we gather, let me tell you, we resist the darkness. It's beautiful, isn't it? That Jesus sang. Oh, but what's maybe even more beautiful is what he sang. What he sang was this. It's amazing. Traditionally, at the end of the, the Passover meal, three hymns were sung by Jews. It's called collectively the, the Hallel. It's Psalm 116, 117, and 118. They were sung consecutively. And do you know then the first words that Jesus sang into his darkness that night? Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So how does this, how does this show us the victory of Christ's story, of Christ's kingdom? Here's how. All through his ministry, and you know this, Jesus was always saying things like this. Like the, the humble will be blessed. That the, the meek will inherit the, the earth. That the, the poor in spirit are rich in faith towards God. The Christian New Testament writers say this. That, that when we're weak, we become strong. That somehow we find strength when we're weak. Uh, and listen, you know this. There's nothing that seems weaker than and poorer than singing. Because how weak does singing look? How weird does it feel sometimes? Some of you are just singing towards your TV or standing up and singing in your home or your living room or your apartment. I mean, how weak or powerless at a point did, did you feel? But Jesus is showing us that when we look weak, when we feel weak, and yet we still sing, we're somehow gathering strength and growing stronger. Now listen, of course, the news media... They won't tell you that. I'm grateful for the media and you should be too so thankful for them. But Jesus shows us what a a news anchor here never will. It's how we find strength to meet the challenge of the days to come. We, We like Jesus. Here's what we do. We drop the penny into the well and we sing into whatever darkness we face. Now listen, Jesus does far more than this. And we're gonna we're gonna take a look at that in the weeks to come. He does far more than this. But he doesn't do less either. And neither should we. So that's number one. The song shows us the kind of victory, the counterintuitive victory at the heart of Christ's kingdom. But, but there's another response here in the text to, to fear in the darkness. It's not a divine response. It's a human response. Let's take a look at it. It's number two. There's a sword here in the passage as well. 
After he sings, Jesus goes out with his disciples to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes with them. He takes them there to pray. And of course, Jesus prays. And, but the disciples all fall asleep. And he comes and he begs and he exhorts them to stay awake, to, to pray in the midst of a crisis. But they won't and they don't and they, they can and they fall asleep. But Jesus wakes them up and he begins to exhort them. And then it says this in verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. So Judas, he, he's now arrived in the garden with a, with a mob, armed to the teeth. And for me, maybe for you, this is one of the most heartbreaking moments of the whole story of Christ's passion. I mean, why, why did Judas uh, arrive with an armed mob? I mean, it's like even after all this time, he didn't understand who Jesus was. Jesus had talked about a kingdom, sung about a kind of a kingdom, hadn't he? But after years of being around Jesus, Judas still didn't get it. It's like he didn't know who Jesus was at all. But I don't want to be too hard on Judas because he's not the only one here who falls apart under pressure. Who else cracks when the moment comes? Of course, it's Peter. And after Judas' kiss, look at what happens next. It says, Then one of those standing near drew his sword. There's chaos breaking out. It struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And now, now Mark doesn't tell us who it was here, but we know from the other Gospels who it was. It was actually Peter. Of course it was Peter. And Peter comes unglued. He comes undone. He, he pulls out his sword. He pulls out his piece, so to speak, and tries to, apparently to behead the nearest person he could find. He swings wildly. He cuts cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus then interrupts him and says, right in this moment, he steps into the crisis. And over in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that he, Jesus says this right here, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. What does he, what does he mean by this? That those who live by the sword will die by it. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a pastor friend uh, named Seth, and some of you may know, may know my friend Seth. Seth's a, a pretty brilliant dude. He's a, he was a former college football player in Oregon at Oregon State, but you, of course, would never know it now because he's gone full hipster, uh, grown the beard, got the, the horn rim glasses, he's got the haircut, he's got the rolled-up boots, the plaid flannel shirts, he drinks green tea incessantly, doesn't drink coffee, you know. Uh, you know, you can't blame him. He's from Oregon after all. But he's got this great church full of hundreds and hundreds of college students in the most uh, unchurched state in the nation. And he told me this story about a moment not too long ago, I think illustrates what Jesus says. And so he said, I could share it with you. Uh, Seth had been preaching through the book of Jonah and he'd been giving the context and the background of the book and showing the different perspectives. Some of you probably know the story, different perspectives on Jonah throughout the centuries, including some voices that though they're, they're, they're Jesus loving, orthodox faith, believing uh, Christians, they just acknowledge, they have acknowledged that Jonah could be as just a story about the very real person named Jonah, but a story written to teach who God is and how to love our enemy. Uh, and because Jonah, after all, in the book, you get to the original language, he, he's ridiculous. He's like this cartoon character. He sort of bungles his way through everything. And Seth's point was, while that he believes that this specific story might not be an historically true story, on the other hand, on the other hand, yeah, it could be true because after all, we have a God who raises the dead and if we have a God who raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, surely he can keep a man alive inside a fish for three days. And that was just Seth's point. But he said the next day, 
which was a Monday, which is always the worst day for a pastor, by the way, because Sundays are the day when people who liked what you said, they, they, they text you or they tell you. But Mondays are the worst because they don't text you. They, they email you. So it's not shorter. It's longer. And they've been stewing about it for 24 hours. And it's just going to be complicated. So Seth gets an email on a Monday, and it's from a parent of one of the college students in his church. And the email reads, where did you get that idea about Jonah? And he instantly reacted and fear welled up him. And he thought, man, this person was offended that I presented another perspective on Jonah. This parent's coming at me. So let's go to war. And so Seth loaded up on all his arguments. He cited his sources. He pulled all the books off his shelf. And he sent this overly aggressive, super long email all about the hundred ways that he was right about what he shared. And he had a point and he hit send and he thought, take that. And he waited nervously for the response. Something he imagined would be to the effect of, my child will no longer set foot in your church ever again. But not too long after that, he did get an email back from the parent. And the response went something like this. Pastor Seth, thank you so much for your thorough response. I loved your message. And I wanted to know where I could learn like you. I'm so glad my child is in your church. And what's your address? Because, by the way, I have a very large financial gift I'd like to give your church to support your ministry. Sincerely, you know, the mom uh, of the student. And, of course, at this point, Seth, he said he felt so guilty. He just about lost it because of the guilt on one hand uh, from all the, the, the fear. And then on the other hand, from, uh, he was grateful for all the, uh, that the mom had overlooked in terms of the aggression in the email. And he said this. He said, Morgan, when I got that original news, the original news, the original email, I was afraid. He said, I was afraid that after everything I had done, everything I'd been working on, everything I had been building towards, it was all going to be. In vain. And so he said, I pulled out my sword like Peter in the garden and made a mess of things. He says, and of course I think, isn't this us? Isn't this us when something unexpected attacks who we are or what we are going after or what we've built? Many times we we pull out a sword, don't we? We take a swing. We we respond out of fear when we don't understand. Oh, it's just a fear-based response. But, But in another way, another way, The disciples here are no different than Peter, right? Because out of fear, they don't overfunction. Out of fear, they underfunction. They also give in to fear. What do they do? They they all flee. They, They don't fight, they flight. These are two different reactions based in the same motive here, in this moment of darkness, which is fear. None of the disciples act like they should in a crisis. Judas acts out of a desire for money, Peter for power, the disciples for self-preservation. Why? Because they're all afraid of the darkness. So what can fix that thing in us? What can enable us to put down fear-based sword drawing or fear-based self-preservation. Well, first I'll tell you what won't fix that. What won't fix fear is only responding to Jesus as just a teacher, as just a human, as just a good example, because it's not enough for Jesus to be our moral example, because none of us can ever live up to him as an example. As an example alone, Jesus, he's kind of crushing. He's sort of terrifying who can do what he does. And listen, the disciples, they all had the teaching. They all had the exampling. They all had, in a way, the singing a person could ever want. And when the moment came, when fear hit them, they all broke. They all fled. 
They hid. Why? Because up until that moment, they had only been relying on a teacher, on an example. And if Jesus is just a great teacher for us, if he's only a nice example for us, if we have never allowed his grace and his person and his presence to come in to our lives and change us from the inside out, let me tell you, we won't have what it takes when the moment comes. So how do we get that? How do we get the power to put down the sword, to pick up our song? How do we get the power to put down fear and to pick up faith? I'll tell you this. It's by seeing here at the end, he knew this was coming, by seeing the naked man here at the end. At the end of the narrative, and you can see this, of course, there's a strange detail. It's only captured in Mark's gospel. There's a reason for that. It says this in verse 51. It says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So who, who, is, this, who is this young man who is not named? Well, many scholars believe that this young man right here was none other than Mark himself, the author of this gospel. Who was Mark? Well, it's fascinating because we do know that Mark's mother's name was Mary. A lot of Marys in the New Testament. His mother's name was also Mary. And later... The book of Acts tells us that the disciples used to meet in her home in Jerusalem, likely out of remembrance, out of celebration, out of reverence for the place where they had that last supper. Meaning it was quite possible that the home where Jesus had his last supper that night would have been Mary's home, where Mark would have been living as a younger man in this moment. And so that night, the the reason, if you trace it back, the reason that it took so long for the soldiers and the mob to reach Jesus, the reason that Jesus had all that time to talk with the disciples in the upper room, all that time to walk to the garden, all that time to pray in the garden, is because Judas, when he left, had come back and taken the soldiers and the mob to Mary's home first. So finding Jesus and the disciples gone, Judas would have taken them next to where he believed Jesus would be, to a a place that the gospel writer Luke tells us that Jesus frequented. And the only place, of course, that was open that night, open 24-7, was that garden. So Judas rightly guessed that Jesus would go and pray in that garden. But Mark, of course, would have been woken up by the mob outside his door first. He would have been sleeping and wearing only what? A linen garment, the garment that men in that day wore to sleep in. So Mark gets up. He he tries to get to the garden first to warn Jesus, but it's too late. And when Mark's time comes, he flees like the disciples, only it's worse. He flees naked. He's a coward, of course, and he includes this autobiographical failure to let you know that he knows that he is no different than Peter, Judas, the other disciples, maybe me, maybe you. In a way, this is Mark's own hashtag me too moment as in I, me too, failed Jesus. But it would get worse for Mark before it ever got better because church history goes on to show us Mark as someone who after the resurrection, yeah, he, he joined the fledgling Jesus movement there in Jerusalem, perhaps because of his mother, but really he was only in it half-heartedly. He, he, he began his ministry by starting out trying to travel with the Apostle Paul, but he only made it eight verses in the book of Acts before he quits, and flees. And leaves and abandons Paul and his ministry and Paul's moment of need. And so after that, when some early church leaders tried to convince Paul to take Mark back with him, Paul refused. To the point where it caused a whole fracture and split of Paul's relationship with his best friend Barnabas. But Barnabas took him back. Barnabas took him in. Because Barnabas was Mark's cousin, you see. 
So off sale of Paul and his ministry, and probably everybody rejoiced that Paul can now go on. He had the guts to do the work that that maybe Mark and Barnabas didn't or couldn't do. And it seemed like that would be the end of Mark. But over the years, something amazing began to happen in the heart of Mark. And we can trace it through the letters in the New Testament. Though he had betrayed Jesus and betrayed Paul, though Mark had failed repeatedly in fear, Mark's life wasn't over. Fifteen years after Mark's moment of failure with Paul, as Paul was writing from a prison, Roman prison, do you know what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae? It's amazing. Look at these words. He says, quote, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Wait, Mark's back? Maybe Mark's even in prison for his faith with Paul? Yeah, it gets even better. Because in the last chapter... Of the last letter, Paul the Apostle, whatever, right. After Paul had gotten out of prison the first time, but had gone back and gotten arrested and back in prison the second time, he says this to his protege, Timothy. He writes this, Get specifically Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. See, Mark wasn't just back. Mark was restored. Mark was healed. And of course, Mark went on to write this gospel. And these words at the end of his story, of Jesus' story today, shows us how he got the power to leave fear behind and to be healed by the love of Jesus. Because did you notice notice the crucial detail Mark gives about himself? Yeah, he was naked. But did you notice where all this is taking place? Have you noticed where this, this whole scene is happening? Where, where is this community of Jesus breaking down? It's in a garden. Where did the first human community first begin to break down? Oh, it's in a garden. See, a long time before this, there were some other naked people in, in another garden. Ours, our first parents, they were naked in that other garden. They were unashamed, but they couldn't pass the test in the garden to stay true, to stay loyal and not run away from God. They fled. They failed their test in the garden. And like Mark, they hid from God. Now, all over again, we've got a bunch of people failing again, failing God. The community of, of humans breaking down. Judas, Peter, the mob, the disciples, Mark, they all fail him. But Jesus doesn't fail. He doesn't fail as Heavenly Father, nor us. He remains faithful, loyal, and true. And the next day, of course, Jesus himself would be stripped down to a simple single garment. And even that would be removed from him. And he died naked. A symbol of shame. See, in the first garden, God had said to Adam, Obey me about the tree and you'll live. And Adam couldn't do it. But in the second garden, God said to the second Adam, the new Adam, Jesus, Obey me about the tree. Go to the cross. and You'll still die. And Jesus still did it. What was he doing? He wasn't just teaching. He wasn't just exampling. He was substituting himself in my place, your place, Mark's place, and the disciples' place. And when he did that, and the disciples finally got it, and they realized that Jesus wasn't just a teacher or an example or only human, but God come to earth, that changed him. That changed all of them. And from then on, all of them, they all gave their lives willingly for what they not just believed, but for what they saw with their own eyes. No more swords, no more desertion, no more fear. They were all changed. And you can be too. Let me tell you, because the miracle of the gospel isn't that you just get forgiven, but it's that you get the uh, new kind of power to live a whole new kind uh, of life, to be a whole new person. Can you see today, right now, what Mark saw looking back years later? 
Mark saw Jesus trading places with him. Jesus, his nakedness, swallowing up Mark's. Mark saw Jesus doing what he couldn't do, Peter couldn't do, getting what Mark and Peter could never get for what they had done. Jesus, the Bible says, bore himself, bore our sin, his fear in his body on that tree that we might die to sin. We might resist fear that we might live for righteousness because by his wounds we are and can be healed. So Mark saw what we need to see today, what we can't look away from today. We need to see someone go in our place. Let me tell you, Jesus, only as your example of staying true, only staying faithful. Jesus is only your example of being loyal. That'll never heal you. But seeing Jesus in your place, taking what you could not, seeing that like Mark saw it, that'll change your life, our life, our community. Mark saw his fear swallowed up in victory by Jesus. And it healed him. So what are we going to do with this today, church? Let me try to apply this quickly in three ways uh, as I begin to close. Number one, here's what this means for us. Number one, it means we're going to look at Jesus for our power over and over and over and see what he's done for us and gain and gather our power from him. Number two, it means we're not going to flee in our present. We're not going to flee our neighbors. We're not going to flee our city. We're not going to flee our community. We're not going to flee our church. We're not, we are not going to overfunction or underfunction through anxiety. How we follow Jesus together in the next few weeks and months may look a little different. It's already looking a little different, but we are not going to flee. We're going to stay and follow Jesus together. And number three, finally, we're going to sing. Here's what this means. We're going to sing into the future. We're going to sing into our future. And for the next few weeks, you know this, we're likely going to be online right here. You need to be here. You need to sing with us and with your church gathered family. And so today we're actually going to close our time by living this out just for a moment by singing. Pastor Nathan's going to come up in just a moment and lead us in a hymn and sing out into our future just like Jesus did. So would you join us now in song? If you know the song, as Pastor Nathan leads us and Pastor Corey's going to come up in just a moment after I pray and give you a few quick and brief announcements. Would you, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for being this for us. For your nakedness, your vulnerability, your shame, swallowing up ours. Thank you that by your wounds we can be healed. And right now in Jesus' name I speak the word of faith. I speak the word of encouragement. The word of power into every person's heart is seeing this and watching this and hearing this. And Lord, I thank you for not just exampling or teaching, but for substituting, for trading places with us. By your wounds, we can be healed. And Lord, I'm praying uh, second for those of us, maybe we've never trusted you before. In this moment, we would do that right now. We would allow your power and your presence and your grace and your touch to change us from the inside out. And Lord, I'm, I'm praying for all those in our community and around the city and around the globe who are affected by our current virus and by the disease that's it's spreading through communities. Lord, we first of all declare that your victory over it. We thank you and we pray for, for you to stop it in Jesus' name. We pray for our medical professionals, our leaders, our civic leaders to have authority and breakthrough and insight. And Lord, give us wisdom as a community, as individuals to respond to our neighbors in need. Thank you for all these things. We love you, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.